Okay, so let's do, we'll go through this. And I want to read this source verse. Uh, many of you, we were here for, in lesson two, we talked about the flesh as a part of our composition. It's something that we got basically from Adam and Eve. We have this sinful nature. Uh, Romans 5.12 says that just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death is spread to all men because all have sinned. We get this imputed sin from Adam, and we have this corrupt, sinful nature that's part of us. There's a part of every single one of us that wants to sin. Because it's fun. We like it. It feels good. It uh, you know, feeds our pride. It feeds our ego. For whatever reason, there's all these different aspects of ourselves that likes to sin. Um, and Paul calls that the flesh in Romans 6, 7, and 8 in Galatians 5 and 6 and in Ephesians 2. We talked a little bit last week how not always in Scripture when you see the word flesh is it talking about this sinful nature. But for the purpose of this study as we're going to see later, uh, that's how we're going to conceptualize and define it. So before we get into it, let's kind of get a feel for what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6, 7, and 8 by pulling out this passage in Romans 7. It's at the top of your page and he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Is Paul a believer? Mm-hmm. Paul's a believer and he has evil present in him? I thought we were new creations. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur, which means I agree with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members what a wretched man that I am I pulled this one out because we should all be able to relate to it I think there's a part of this just like Paul we want to do the right thing or at least we say we do and we may think we do but then we find this pull and we find this part of us that wants to not do what we're supposed to do and that's what he's getting at. It's, our, it's the corrupt part of us. It's, our, it's the fleshly part of us that wants to do that. So we're going to see today specifically what he means by that. And I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. This can be a difficult uh, lesson because it's convicting. Uh, it's uncomfortable when you start thinking about how it practically applies to you. A lot of people don't like to be convicted about their sin or about stuff that's going on inside of them. But I think if you set that aside and you get honest with yourself in the moment and you interact and engage with this material, it has the opportunity to be life-changing. And I can say that honestly because it was for me. This is a study that has the ability to impact you for good because it helps you understand who you are. And it helps you to understand that there's a part of you that you're never going to be rid of, at least not in this body. Someday you'll be rid of it. But there's a part of you inside of you that sets its desire against what God wants for you. And often we side with that, and that's uncomfortable to think about, especially because of some of the implications that we're going to see today. So let's look at the goals in review. We want to gain an ability to define the flesh based on its depiction from passages in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay? After we leave today, and especially after next week, I would hope that everybody in this room could read Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians 5, and 6, Ephesians 2, and know what Paul means by the flesh. Number two, I want us to understand the characteristics of the flesh. What makes the flesh the flesh? 
how does Paul describe it? Uh, because it's part of our identity, and so we need to understand what its role is as part of our identity. And then the third thing is one of the most important things because it's the practical application aspect of it, and that's to comprehend what it means to have victory against the flesh. I've told you many times, and I'll always say it, being on a college campus with a bunch of young men, I get the opportunity to do mass discipleship, one-on-one discipleship, and I get to have these conversations. And I'm just being clear and straightforward when I say there are so many of them that say, I can't win this battle, and especially against pornography. And they say, this is something I can't, no matter what I do, I can't stop it. And I don't think I'm ever going to be able to. And that, it, that thought, that, that mindset, it is directly stands in opposition to what God says here and what Paul had already said in Romans 6, which is that you can't stop it because the bonds of the flesh have been broken and you don't have to obey its lusts anymore. It's easier said than done. But it starts by understanding who you are and what you're made of. And even greater than that, who's inside of you and the ability that you have. So let's do a quick review before we get into this. Because this is, we talked about the last couple of lessons being the foundation for identity. So I put here as the review. When a person believes, okay, so this is a believer, they become new. New, new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, the old new things have come. So they become new creations. They're made spiritually alive. This is a big deal. Okay? And I know that I've emphasized that as a big deal the last two weeks, but it's important that you understand that there is a physical side of you. You were born into this body. You were born into a flesh. That is the physical you. But there's a part of you that changed. Part of what you, as a new creation, is that you're made spiritually alive. So you have this physical aspect. Here's your life timeline. And if you remember the chart from week one, here's where you're born. You are now fleshly. You now have a physical body. You have a natural desire or to sing, to do what you want, to promote yourself. It's why babies cry, because they want to get, they want hungry, they want to get fed. They want their diaper changed. Uh, it's why you fight as a kid for toddlers, and that's my toy, and you hit the other kid over the head with it, because that's yours. That's my toy. We all have kids, we've seen it. You want to promote yourself. At some point though, you're going to die physically as a result of sin. Okay? So you have this physical lifespan. Hopefully, at some point in between point A and point B, you put your faith in Jesus as Savior and for eternal life, and something cool happens. You don't just have this physical life. You get this corresponding spiritual life, which never ends. It's an eternal life. Okay, so when I say to you, if you're in Christ and you're a new creation, the old things pass away, behold, new things have come. One of the new things that's come is you're made spiritually alive. Ephesians 2 says that you come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. 
First uh, Corinthians said that a natural or soulish man, meaning one without a spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So you become new creations, you're made spiritually alive, and then what indwells you? The Holy Spirit indwells you. We talked a little bit about this last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, last lesson. What is the Holy Spirit? Spirit of God. It is God. It's just as much God as Jesus the Son and God the Father. People don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit because it seems weird. And in the King James, they call it the Holy Ghost. And it's this, seems like this ethereal, you know, something that you can't understand. And part of it's that way because the Holy Spirit's job isn't to promote himself. The Holy Spirit's job is to promote who? To promote Jesus. He's supposed to convict, and he does convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He illuminates scripture for the believer. Jesus calls him a helper in John. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've taught you. So the Holy Spirit is a helper, but it's God within us. And that's not something that we should take lightly. So the Holy Spirit indwells us. The third thing we've seen, and this, is a, this isn't something that's talked about a lot, but we are placed in union with Christ. When I say that you're placed in union with Christ, what in the world does that mean? Fellowship? It can have an aspect of fellowship, yes. It allows us to have fellowship with him. I'll say that, yeah. Yeah, so we are identified. When we talk about in union, we're talking about really the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are placed into union with Christ. So that when he died, we identify with his death. When he rose to a new life, we identify with that and rise to a new life. And so we're placed into union with Christ. Uh, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. We are in Christ. We're placed into the body. We're given spiritual gifts. We're made spiritual alive. All of those things happen when we're placed in union with Christ. So as new creations in Christ... In unified, identified with Christ, we are to walk in the newness of life. That's the name of the class. That's the point in the overarching uh, truth that we want to convey throughout this series. Because of these things, because you're spiritually alive, because Jesus did what he did, uh, because he's given you a spir uh, spiritual gifts and a new life, we should live like it. We should act like it. Because we're no longer just physical. We, we get the opportunity to walk by the Spirit, to live out the spiritual life that we're going to live in the kingdom and for eternity. We get that opportunity now. And that's what he's saying in Romans 6. You don't have to do that anymore. He says, stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness and present yourselves uh, to God as those who are alive. Because we are. We are now spiritually alive and we should live like it. The problem is, is that we don't. We don't always live like it. And what we're going to see today is that's because we have enemies that set their will against us. And one of those enemies is inside of us. It's us. It's the fleshly side of us. So we saw last, last lesson that as believers we've been made spiritually alive. 
and we're equipped with the ability to move from being slaves to sin to the ability to walk in the newness of life. So knowing that we're now, create, now new creations, that we have this new capacity, let me ask you, why isn't it easy to walk in the Spirit? Why isn't it easy to stop sinning? And why can't we finally and completely be conformed to the image of Christ? Why do you think? Because there's a battle. There's a battle where? Inside. Inside. Between the spirits. That's right. So Russ says, part of the reason we can't be completely fully conformed is we have a flesh, which is being pulled, and it's in a battle with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Who is the flesh? It's us. Who's the Holy Spirit? That's a weird to think about. But when you do what you want, above and beyond what God wants for you, isn't that sin? Isn't that defection from God and His Word and His will and His character? That's exactly what it is. This is weird to think that we can become enemies of God, even, even as believers. And we'll see it today that we are. There's actually verses that talk about that. So, have you ever found it difficult to consciously keep from sinning? I think that we all have to say, yeah, I do it sometimes knowing that it's wrong. Have you ever noticed that tension that Russ talks about? The part of you that wants to do the right thing, but another part of yourself is unwilling or maybe even seemingly unable to do so. I put here that if so, you're not alone. In this lesson, we're going to see from the Bible that this force that pulls us to do what we shouldn't do and keeps us from doing what we should do uh, is the flesh. But let's start by looking, open up your Bibles to Ephesians 2. If you don't have it, I'll read it. Start in verse 1 at the top of Ephesians. Paul writes and says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How can someone who's alive be dead? Spiritually. Okay, so they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. They, are, they, they don't have a human spirit yet. They have a soul, but they don't have a spirit yet. Okay? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So looking at these, there are three things in these three verses that set their will against us, that set their desires against us. What do you guys see as our enemies? That's the first one. According to the course of this world. So that's going to be, you can write that on either one, two, or three. That's one enemy. And we're going to do a series of lessons on that so that we can figure out what the heck he means by the course of this world. How is this world system our enemy? What else do you see? Satan. Yeah, but isn't that who the prince of the power of the air is? You can put Satan or the devil. 
again, something often cast aside. A lot of people don't know what to do with that. This Is it just a manifestation of evil? Or is he an actual being? What is the devil? What is Satan? We're going to talk about that too. And what about the third one? And probably, and not probably, the most pertinent one to this lesson. Yeah, it's the flesh. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So in this series, we're going to look at all three of these individuals, but today we're just going to focus on the flesh. So in this series, when you see the Greek Alpha and Omega, we're going to talk about what this word means in the Greek. And if you look at a concordance, like a Strong's Concordance or a Thayer's Dictionary, there's a lot of verbiage in those, so I've done my best to condense these down into six things. But in these passages, we're going to study this lesson, uh, which means that I'm giving a caveat for these first three. This is how we're going to conceptualize it. Number one, it has the idea of being the physical part of human nature apart from divine influence and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. Okay? Two, being carnal. When I say carnal, what do I mean? Yeah, well, I mean the flesh. But when I, when I, Scott's right, I am talking about the flesh. But when you think about carnality, what do you think about? Pornography. Okay, I think so. That can be part of being carnal. What else do you think about? I think of evil. Yeah, I, I do too. I think there, there's a negative side. It's the negative part of our uh, physical existence or desire, the negative desires. Which goes along with number three, and really kind of what you're getting at Russ is having a sensuous nature. A lot of times people want to um, limit carnality, sensuality, and the whole idea of the flesh to sexual things, but it's not just sexual. I mean, that is a, it's an easy pull for everybody, but it's not just sexual. The flesh can be anything that you want to do for yourself that's apart from what God wants for you. It doesn't just have to be sexual, but it certainly includes it. Uh, there can be an aspect of pride in there. There can be an aspect of gluttony. There can be an aspect of anything physical. Okay? Uh, but I also, it's important to note that there's a lot of parts of Scripture that talk about the flesh that have nothing to do with this, with nothing negative. Generally, it is spoken about negatively. But not all the parts. In other parts, it can refer to just the physical composition of living beings on earth. Yeah, anything fleshly means not spiritual, something that's here on earth and living. Uh, five, the subcutaneous tissue. Subcutaneous is just a fancy word for under the skin. The, sub, the subcutaneous tissue distinct from blood and bone, so it's muscle tissue. Like where it talks about tearing the flesh from animals and offering them in sacrifices, that's what's talking about, the muscle tissues. Or it could be like a physical source. Uh, we see in Scripture where they say, like, flesh of my flesh. Uh, or we see that, like in First Corinthians, um, that which is born of flesh is fleshly, and that which is born of the spirit is spiritual. Um, for the purposes of this study, here's the definition I want you guys to lock in your head. We will think about and define the flesh in Scripture as the part of human composition that wants to do what we want 
regardless of what God wants for you, okay? It's the part of the human composition that wants what we want, regardless of what God wants for you. So when I say that to you, you know, J.B. always gives the example of, you know, somebody walking by a street sign that says, there's a hole, don't look in here. Nobody's going to tell me where I can't look, and then they look in the hole. That's a pretty good conceptualization. God gives us all sorts of warning signs and says, either do this or don't do that, because it's good for your benefit, by the way. But then we say, nobody's going to tell me what I can and can't do. I'm going to get mine. That's the fleshly idea that we're trying to give you here. So one of the applications, and we'll talk about it later, but I want you to start thinking about it now, or what, what is that for you? What are some of the pools of your flesh that you can start to identify now so that you can figure out how to have victory against them? And we're going to give, we're going to give, you know, we're going to talk about how to have victory against that. But I want you to start thinking about it now. A lot of times, I have number one here, a lot of times in Scripture, Paul talks about it as an old way of existence. He calls it the old man. Not the, there's the old man and the new man. By old, I don't mean age, like an old man. It's just a former way of life. He says, take off the old self, put on the new self. Get rid of the old self, put on the new self, is what he's talking about. So when you think about that, let me ask you, when you look at Scripture, and you can be honest or open, or you don't have to say anything, but when you think about that, what does it mean to you to put off the old self and to put on the new? To get rid of the old man or old woman and put on the new man or new woman? Because this is all relevant to your identity. This is pertinent to who you are in Christ. How can you know what to put on if you don't know what, what that means? How can you put off the old self if you don't know what's changed or if you don't know what the old self is, looks like? Because there's an... And you don't have to answer the question. I don't think anybody really wants to. So, I, I think of it I think of it as like he sometimes just says... Stop living like people who don't know who God is or don't know God and stop start living like people who do know who God is and know God. And when you talk about the the old and the new, I, I think of the old is you know if somebody who doesn't know God, they don't know any better <coughs> or don't have any reason to try to do any better. That's what I think of when I think of that. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the same way with me. So Kevin says, when I think about that, Kevin says, I think about stop living like there's not a God. You know better now. If you've put your faith in Jesus for salvation, that's more than just simply gaining eternal life. That is his point. He says, you know who I am. And what's even more than that, you should know that you're my child. You're a child of God by your faith in me. So live like it. Stop putting yourself back under the bondage of the flesh, which I worked so hard to break, by the way. I didn't come, Jesus, I didn't come and live a perfect life and give that life up for you so that you could just 
abuse it or ignore it. You simply have that. You, you certainly have that freedom, but don't do that because it diminishes what I did for you. So stop living like you don't know what I did for you. And that's what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, consider it in your mind. Think about it. Consider that you have died and risen again with Christ. So you don't have to present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But you can present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your instruments as righteous, instruments of righteousness for Him. You have that choice. I think that's a big part of what he says by put off the old and put on the new. So there is an aspect of a mental consideration and understanding that is a know who you are. Know that you're a child of God. Because that has certain implications for you. Not so that you can gain eternal life, because you already get that. But there is a quality of life that he wants you to enjoy here on this earth. He wants your perspective to be straight. He wants your priorities to be straight. Not because it's what's good for him, but because it's what's good for us. That's how our paths are straight. And so many people get confused because they think they have to do that so that they can maybe someday get into heaven. And that's not how it works. Our entrance into the kingdom is based on our faith in Jesus as Savior. Okay, but our experience in the kingdom is based on our faithfulness to live out a life for him now. Live this life now and being prepared for the life to come. Start striving to be more Christ-like. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good way to say to put off the old and to put on the new means trying to be like Jesus. Because you couldn't do that before. You were spiritually dead, but now you've been made spiritually alive and you can... You can start growing. You can start to mature to look more and more like Jesus. There was a lot of fun things when I was spiritually dead. Yeah. And then you just got forgiven. Yeah. Because it's actually better if you start being more Christ like. Yeah. Your life will actually be better. It will. Sin's fun, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If if it wasn't, nobody would do it. Nobody would do it. Yeah. So it's an old way of existence, but so often we treat it like it's the only way of existence. And it's not. There's a better life. There's a better way. And number two, I have an, an attempt. An attempt to do or be anything apart from God. An attempt to do or an attempt to be anything apart from God. Is that possible, by the way? Yes, it's possible. To be something? Okay. So let's think about that. So I can... John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is truth in what Russ is saying. You can be something, it just doesn't count. Right. It's just not of worth, it's not of it's value. Here. If you want to be fruit, or excuse me, if you want to bear fruit, like he says in John 15, I'm going to say it again, and you tell me what the prerequisite is to bear fruit. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What's the prerequisite for bearing fruit in that verse? It's abiding. Abiding is down here. Not up here. 
It's the spiritual life that you're supposed to live. Well, not supposed to. You will in eternity live that life out. But you have the opportunity to live that life now here on this earth. Abiding and bearing fruit comes from your spiritual life, from your conforming to the image of Christ. Okay? But the flesh is going to attempt to do what we want here, because this is where the flesh is. Flesh is up here on the physical. The flesh is going to say, feed me. Give me power. Give me money. Give me sex. Give me reputation. I need to get mine. That's what your flesh tells you. And in Galatians 5.13, he says, you're called to freedom. Brethren, Christians, you're called to freedom. Just don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity through the flesh. Let through love serve one another. Serving is inherently opposite to the flesh because you're serving others, not yourself. We're going to see it later. So the flesh is present within every believer and every unbeliever. Okay? Everyone comes into this world spiritually dead and trespasses and sins as a result of Adam's sin. We saw this last week. But I put it here again. We've already read it once, but let's look at it again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, we know what that means. We too... Believers all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Okay? We all come in this world dead in trespasses and sins. And because of Adam, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And what is the result of sin? Death. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death has spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. So before someone believes in Jesus, so we'll call him an unbeliever, before someone believes in Jesus for eternal life, they walk according to the flesh because they do not have the ability to walk otherwise. We've talked about it already from 1 Corinthians, proves this point when he says the natural or soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We're going to see here in a minute, Paul makes the same point here in Romans 8. The flesh is the master of unbelievers because it chains and binds them to sin and to death. They don't have a choice. Unbelievers are chained to sin and death because sin is their master. The flesh is their master. We're going to see it. I should have put the verse before that so that I could bring a point, but just keep that in your mind. Unbelievers are walking according to the flesh and are hostile toward God. Unbelievers are walking according to the flesh and hostile toward God. Literally, they are enemies of God. Can you imagine? That's a dangerous place to be. <laughs> That's dumb, too smart to me. <laughs> the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the protector of the universe. And he, little specks of dust human beings stand in opposition to him. Hostile to him. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love him because he does. If he didn't, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. He has, he does, and he always has, by the way. What it means is that fleshly actions are inherently against what God wants. 
because they're in opposition to his will. And in this sense, they're enemies. That makes people his enemies. And, while, and not just unbelievers, but while believers are capable of succumbing to the flesh as well, the difference is that unbelievers are spiritually dead. They don't have a choice. They eliminate, or the option for them to do anything else is eliminated because they have it. They're not spiritually alive. Romans 8, 5, 10 explains it. Let's read this. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay, that makes sense. If you're chained and you're bound to your flesh, which is your master, then you're going to set your mind on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. This is pretty black and white. There's not any gray area here. It's one or the other. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Here's the explanation. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. Why? It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is a misunderstanding, I think, between love, God's love for us and our pleasing Him. Can God's love for us ever change? No. Can it ever increase or decrease based on our actions? Even unbelievers? Even unbelievers. Even unbelievers. His love for every individual is always at its maximum. And nothing that we could do, say, think, feel, or act out can change that. Even though a lot of times that means people are hostile toward him. His love doesn't change. Can we please him if we're living by the flesh? You can't. The implication of that is that when you're fleshly, you can't appropriately serve him. Either your motives are wrong, or your works don't count because they're self-serving. The mindset on the flesh is death, and those who are in the flesh can't please God. But he says, however, you are not in the flesh. Who, has he ha- who does he have to be talking about now? He's talking to believers. However, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Yes. How do you know? Because I accepted Him. Because you put your faith in Christ as Savior. In that moment, the Holy Spirit places you in union with Christ. We are given the Holy Spirit as a seal to our inheritance. He's given us a down payment or a pledge, not a seal, excuse me. He seals us, but He's given us a pledge to our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you got to know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That you're not your own because you've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Okay. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Okay, that's pretty simple, straightforward. If Christ is in you, and he is, if you're a believer, though the body is dead because of sin... Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's weird to think about, but there's this dual, there's this plurality that's going on inside of us. 
We are physical and fleshly, and because we are, it has a set, it has a package, it has a inherent uh, pre-ordered package that comes with us at birth. We're physical and we're fleshly, and that doesn't change until we're out of this body. But now we are made spiritually alive by faith. We get the Holy Spirit. We can abide and please God. We can bear fruit. The burden of responsibility here is on who? Meaning, yeah, it's us. We get to decide what happens here. Up here, the flesh controls us because we didn't have an option. We were spiritually dead. But now that we've been made spiritually alive, we have freedom. We're just not supposed to use it for the flesh. But through love, we're supposed to serve one another. Because serving other people is inherently different than serving yourself, which the flesh is always going to do. So you get the choice. Each individual in here, if you say, I can't beat pornography, I can't stop lying, I can't stop looking at girls that way, I can't stop comparing myself to other women, I can't do all these things that our flesh drives us to do. If you say you can't stop that, you're saying that God's lying. And he's not. You can beat it. We're going to see how. We see from this passage, you tell me, based on what we saw up here in Romans 8, 5 through 10, we see from this passage the mindset on the flesh are three things. What are they? That's number two. Death is number one. How about cannot please God? So let's let's do a little mini break here and think about this for a second. Look at those three things one more time. Where do you want to be on that? The mindset on the flesh is death. That's bad. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. That's bad. The mindset on the flesh cannot please God. That's bad. But there's good news. And that good news is that we have an option. The good news is that because of our identity in Christ, because of who we are, because we're new creations and we are made spiritual (coughs) and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we have spiritual gifts, we can live a life of peace. We can be a friend of God. And we can please God. The burden of responsibility is on each individual. We're going to talk later in the series on what that means theologically, but I'm more interested in the practical right now. What does it mean to abide? And how can we live out the spiritual truths of Scripture? And how can we uh, nurture the spiritual (coughs) of ourselves? We're going to see here in section 3.3, dominance of the flesh is conquered. In the case of believers, the dominance of the flesh has been conquered. But the flesh remains. In Galatians 5.16 and 17, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets itself against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets itself against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you won't do the things that you please. 
The pull to sin is not eliminated at conversion. When I say that the pull to sin is not eliminated at conversion, what do I mean? That you can overcome it. Okay, so that's true. It's true that you can overcome it, but when I say that it's not eliminated at conversion, literally, what does that mean? Still have it. Still have it. Okay. I want to make sure that everybody gets that. Because there are a lot of denominations and a lot of churches that you'll go to, and they'll say that if you still sin presumptuously, meaning that you know you're going to sin, that you can't really be saved. Is that true? It can't be true from Scripture. If people say that you have to live a you know, non-carnal life or else you weren't really saved, is that true? Can Christians live carnally? Can Christians live in the flesh? 100% they can. Matter of fact, I would say that that makes up the vast majority of Christianity in 2022. It doesn't mean that they don't have eternal life. It just means that they're living here, not here. We should be doing this, but a lot of times we don't. It's important that you understand. Otherwise, what Paul says in Galatians 5.13, to the brethren, you're called to freedom, brethren. Just don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh. Believers have that choice. They have the ability to live a fleshly and carnal life. If somebody says, nah, this Paul couldn't have been writing to believers here, that's only for unbelievers. They've missed the point. And they have an unbelievable sense of self-righteousness. Because who, uh, who in this world, as a believer, can say that they're sinless? And I've said it in this class before, but I want to say it again. There's two sides of that coin. There's not doing the things that you aren't supposed to do. That's good. But I promise you those people aren't doing all the things they are supposed to do. Do they pray without ceasing? Do they pray? Do they study to show themselves approved? Are they kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving each other? Do they imitate God's beloved children and walk in love? Jesus Christ also loved us. Do husbands love their wives? Do fathers not exasperate their children? There's just as many things that we're supposed to do as believers that we're not supposed to do as believers. And the good, well, the bad news is we can't do them. The good news is it doesn't matter if you've put your faith in Christ. It matters, but not from an eternal life standpoint. We should strive to do the things that we're supposed to do, and we should restrain from not doing the things we aren't supposed to do. But we can't measure up. We can't. If we could, then Jesus died needlessly. If we could do it on our own, then why do he even need to come? The pull to sin is not eliminated at conversion. However, through our unification, our identification with Christ's death and resurrection, we have the power to defeat or overcome the flesh. This goes back to our newness of life and its core or central to our identity, who we are as believers. Our passage from Romans 8, extending back to verse 1, shows that Christ has done away with the dominance of the flesh for believers who are in Christ. Look at how the chapter begins. Therefore, summary statement, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? Condemning. What is it, Paige? Condemnation is the negative 
side of judgment. You'll never be judged and found guilty. Is that good news or bad news? That is the good news. That is, that is great news. It goes along with the gospel message. You're never going to be judged and found guilty for your sin. If that doesn't make you feel great, I don't know if you comprehend it. This should make you feel great. Because we're all sinners and we all deserve it. We all deserve condemnation. But because of what Jesus did, we're not going to have it. He says right here, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's see what he's, he's going to explain it here. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's true. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is hard to understand and grasp, but we're going to go through it line by line here in a second. Let me read that again. What the law couldn't do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in His flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us? How can that be? Who did not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So let's talk about this. A couple of good summary statements for this is that Christ has broken the chains and dominance of the flesh for believers. Okay? We, we've already seen that so far. That Christ has broken the chains and dominance of the flesh for believers. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. As uh, the chains and dominance of the flesh been broken for unbelievers? No. It, it hasn't. For believers, that's part of why we're made new creations. We're made just. We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. So going back to our verses, Paul walks us through this mo monumental victory for Christians in our daily lives. And this is. This is important in our daily lives. So let's consider this chain of events that he walks us through in these four verses. Number one, he says, uh, For what the law could not do, we can know for the flesh God did. Man could not keep the law's requirements. Is that true? Okay. Going back to the Mosaic Law, was, do you think that was hard or easy to keep? Like just in our day-to-day day, day -day life. It's ridiculous. Go back and read some of the nonsense they had to do. And I say nonsense. I, I shouldn't say that because it is, it is perfect. Ten listed are fairly easy, but yeah, like 600 and something, I think. Yeah, 600. So there's the Ten Commandments, but we're talking about the 613 rules, regulations, statutes, and ordinances that are given to the nation of Israel to set them apart. It's hard, and nobody can keep it. Nobody can do it. Oh, that's a good point. 
So Russ said they couldn't keep it, so they had sacrifices. Okay, so who had to who did the sacrificing? Okay, so priests had to sacrifice, make sacrifices. Why? Because man couldn't keep the law. Because they couldn't keep the law. That's going to be a super important fact to remember here in just a second. Because of that, sin endured. And what I mean by that is it wasn't dealt with. Sin persisted. Well, what the law couldn't do was pay for sin. Couldn't take it away. Bingo. All right, so hold those thoughts. Number two, therefore, mankind needed a permanent solution for sin and its result, death. Sin always brings what? Death. Which is separation. Okay? This Paul's walking us through this. This is a different way of giving the gospel message. Mankind couldn't keep the law. And so sin wasn't dealt with. We needed a permanent solution for sin and death. So number three, Jesus, born of the Spirit, didn't give Adam's <coughs> imputed sin. So the verse says, Therefore, just through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death is spread to all men. Not to Jesus, because he wasn't born of man. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the imputed sin of Adam. And he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law, the only one who did, by the way. And that qualified him alone as the perfect substitute for mankind. So because of Jesus, who he was in his person, the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and then lived a perfect life on top of that qualified him to be our perfect substitute. And then he did it. Number four, he gave his perfect life. And he died on the cross accomplishing what the law could not. He eliminated sin instead of simply covering it. Hebrews 10, 4 says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Jesus eliminated it. Russ said earlier that the priests had to do the sacrificing. Circle Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And I want you to read that sometime. It's a beautiful picture. In that verse, it says that every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. That he, Jesus, having made the payment for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering. And they're always offering these sacrifices time after time. They can never take away sin. But Jesus, having offered one payment for sin for all time, sat down because the work is done. There's no more sacrifices. He dealt with sin. He was our perfect substitute and took it on himself for us. He eliminated sin instead of simply covering it. And then he rose again, conquering the result of sin, death, and replaced it with the offer of life. That is a beautiful juxtaposition. Not just that the priests are standing and that Jesus sat, but that he dealt with sin 
and its result and replaced death with the offer of life for us. He's uniquely qualified to be our Savior because of what he did. And now he offers eternal life to anyone who would put their faith in him for it. Which is number five. When we believe in Jesus for eternal life, we are placed in Christ and unified in his death and resurrection. And I said it earlier, when God looks at us now, what does he see? He sees Jesus. Therefore, since we are unified in his death and resurrection, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. That is beautiful. The requirement of the law is what? Death. Death or perfection. We identify with Jesus' death and we're made perfect. He kept it and we're unified with him. So when God looks at us from an eternal standpoint, he sees Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. I wish the Christians understood this because it's part of their makeup. It's part of their identity. What it means to be in Christ is a powerful, it's relevant statement. And it has implications. Six, the flesh has lost its power over those who are in Christ Jesus, the new creations. Nathan said it last week. He said, the sin nature that chained us before we were believers is dealt with. It's done. But like idiots, we put ourselves back under its bondage when we say to God, I don't care what you want from me. I want to do what I want for you without regard to what you've set for me. We all do it. That is literally a, a depiction of sin. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's what David did with Bathsheba. All throughout Scripture and in our daily lives, we encounter people who say to God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's because of our flesh. We put ourselves back under the bondage of the flesh. And so even though the war is won, the battle continues, and that's on us. And that's what section 3.4 is. The war is won, but the battle continues. Paul's just demonstrated that Christ has set us free from the bondage of the flesh. Yet he follows this great news with a warning against living according to the flesh and coming back under the slavery again. Look what he says. So then, brethren, this is believers. We're not, a, we're not under obligation. We don't have to obey the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Because remember, the mindset on the flesh is death. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Kill this part, live to this part. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But if you, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children of God, then we're also heirs. I love that part. And fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. It's a theological truth that is either misunderstood, ignored, or not taught. But if you suffer with Christ, if you abide, you will be rewarded. Not with eternal life. That's not a reward. That's a gift. But in the life to come, you will be rewarded since you be glorified with it. We'll talk about that later in the series. But we see here that the flesh remains even after being made new. He says you're not under obligation to it, to live. Because if you live by it, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you're putting the deeds of the body, you'll live. This is an if, and maybe it's true, and if, maybe it's not. Because as believers, we have this option. I still dream sometimes about my old jobs that I've had. Like, I'm still there. I don't know if any of you guys experience this, but sometimes I'll dream about old jobs that I had, and that my bosses are doing something, and something's happening. It's kind of the same thing what Paul's saying here. I work for Oklahoma State, but if one of my, what if my boss from one of my old jobs at the bank called me and started bossing me around and telling me what to do. Do I have to obey that? It's the same thing with the flesh. The flesh is always calling you and saying, I know you don't work for me anymore, but here's what I want you to do. And we obey it. We put ourselves back under its authority instead of the authority that we now have to the Holy Spirit. Paul deals with these truths about the flesh in Romans 7. So I'm going to read these, and you see if you can hear two ways that the flesh fails us in this passage. And there's a little spoiler alert because there's two blanks right after this, but you can see if you can fill it. Romans 7, 14 through 24 is one part, excuse me, 14 through 20 is one part, and 21 through 24 is the other. Okay, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. What does that mean? The law is spiritual? What does that mean? Where did it come from? The law? Who gave the law? God. Okay. Okay. So we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of flesh, sold into bondage of sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, and it is. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. A lot of times people think that Paul's being bipolar or schizophrenic here, and he's saying, yeah, I'm sinning, but it's not really me. And all he's saying here is exactly what we've been demonstrating this entire lesson. When he sins, it's this part of him doing what he wants to do, when he ought to be abiding. He's no longer the old creature, the old person. 
So in, in that sense, he, he can't act like that old person. That's exactly Still. right. Because and he's new. And a whole new identity, a whole new person. It can't be me. Because I'm new. I've done away with that part. That part has been done away for me. So it's not me. It's the old man inside of me. For if you've not received... Oh, sorry. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing it's good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. For the willing that's present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. Okay? Then verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present within me. That's the flesh, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What a wretched man I am. And then he asks a hypothetical question and he answers it. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh the law of sin. Here's a summary statement for these two different passages. Number one, we cannot overcome our corruption on our own. Our our what? Corruption. A corruption. Are we corrupt? Is there a part of you that's corrupt? A lot of people, especially self-righteous people, don't want to admit there is. But there is. Every single person has a corrupt part of them that will always exist in this body, in this flesh. And you can't overcome it on your own. The second point is that we cannot achieve goodness on our own. And people have a problem with this sometimes. You cannot achieve goodness on our own. It took Jesus' death and our identifying in his resurrection and our identifying in that to overcome both of these. We were chained to the flesh. We couldn't do that by ourselves. We needed a savior, someone to deal with sin ultimately and death. And then we can't achieve goodness on our own. We need supernatural. And that's weird to say because it makes us like superheroes, but it's true. We need the Spirit of God inside of us in order to produce the type of fruit that we need to please God. We can't please Him, but He can please Himself through us. So when it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness and self-control that's all supernatural that's fruit of the spirit not fruit of your desire your desire is here but when you're walking by the spirit and you're serving others or sacrificing for others or loving others 
being patient with others, being kind and gentle with others. That's not natural. Now, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that unbelievers can't demonstrate those qualities. What I am saying is that they can't please God unless it's through the Spirit. The motives will always be in check or in question for unbelievers because they're controlled by their flesh. We can't stop doing bad and aren't capable of being righteous or good without the redeeming act of Christ or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because if we could, again, Jesus died needlessly. The flesh is the part of us that desires to live independently from God. Okay? How many... How how often does that characterize our lives? That we just want to be left alone. From the time that I was five to the time that I was probably 30, that, that, that sentence characterized me. I just want to do my thing. I've got eternal life. I just want to be left alone. I'll do my thing. You know, if, if life is good, it'll be because I earned it. And if it's bad, it'll be because I earned it. That's what I thought. Because I was here, not here. We're going to talk about, after we get done with the series on enemies, we're going to talk about Romans 12, where Paul begs us. He urges us by the mercies, because of the mercies that Christ has shown us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God. When you can get to that point, I think you've done it right. When you can get to a point in your life to where you say, I want my life to count for Christ. And I know that means abiding, and there's some responsibility there. It means that I have to sacrifice my mind, my energy, my will, my emotion, my resources, and give that up for God. That's a good place to be. Paul wouldn't beg us to do that. Paul wouldn't beg us to do that Number one, if it happened automatically. And number two, if it wasn't important. But he does. And that goes against everything that this world system is telling us. The world system says, get rich, get famous, get beautiful, get ripped, get sexy, get possession, get the biggest house, get the nicest car, get all this stuff. And a lot of that stuff inherently is nothing wrong with it. But the motives behind it can be. And the world system has tracked and numbed people's minds to a point to where most of their motives are wrong. And they do want that stuff for the wrong reason. The spirit, the spiritual life and abiding stands in stark contrast and opposition to that. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you won't do the things that you please. That's convicting. When I started this lesson there, I said that sometimes that's unpleasant. Because when you get put to the point of decision to say, I'm going to sacrifice what I have for Jesus, it's a gut-wrenching moment. What are you going to do with it? I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts us towards what really matters, and that's the appropriate perspective and the appropriate mindset. We've talked about how long will you guys exist? How long will I exist? There is no end.
but our life on this earth is just a speck. It's just a dot on the line of eternity. But what we do here matters and affects the rest of it. And so I want to live a life that's pleasing to God, and I can only do that if I'm abiding. I can only bear fruit for Him if I'm doing what He wants. That's something I have to remind myself, because sometimes I'll go months and I'll be doing good. But then something will happen, and I'll check out mentally, I'll check out spiritually. Sin will come into my life, and there'll be some sort of break of fellowship or separation. And before I know it, it's been an equal amount of months. Because I'm put myself back into the chains of the flesh. And so that's what I need you for. And that's what you need me for. That's why we need a teacher. That's why we need an encourager. That's why we need people with the gift administration to organize programs and services. That's why we need people that have empathy so that they can love me when I'm going through that. Every person gets that spiritual gift or a spiritual gift for each other. <coughs> because we all go through those highs and lows, even in the Christian life. Even if your head's screwed on straight, you're still going to succumb to sin. But as a body, we aren't supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Because we all have this battle, whether it's out in the open or whether it's in deep, dark places. Everybody's fighting. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Next week we're going to examine this exact tension in detail and the tremendous weight of its importance for us, which deals very much with what we've just been talking about. So let's go through this summary and application. We'll handle some questions. Summary statement number one, the flesh is the part of human composition that wants to do what we want, regardless of what God wants. Isn't that sin? It is. When you conceptualize it that way and you think about it, it's convicting to say, when I presumptuously sin, in a sense I'm slapping God in the face and saying, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do what I want. And in that way, you make yourself out to be the God because you're saying, I know better than you. Or I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want. That's our flesh, and it's dirty, and it doesn't play fair, by the way. Number two, the fleshly person is hostile toward God, marked for death. Okay? This is an important statement because it applies to both unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, it's eternal death and separation. For believers, it's temporal loss of fellowship. You don't lose your relationship with God because of you sin as a believer. But you can break your fellowship. And if you're out of fellowship and you're walking according to the flesh, you can't please Him. You can't earn rewards. You can't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Three, when we believe in Jesus for eternal life, we're in union with His victory over the flesh. Because keep in mind, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but he was tempted to sin because he was in a body. Along with that came hunger. The temptation for pride, that's what Satan tried to tempt him. Jesus went and fasted for 40 days and Satan tried to give him bread. 
Jesus fought it off with scripture. He tempted his pride. He said, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself over this ledge here and have the angels prove it to me. I mean, I'm competitive. I would have wanted to just show Satan. I'll show you. I'll do more than that. But Satan would have won. And he tempts him to worship you. And he said, I'll give you everything. Just like the world system offers. But, he, in his body, took on all of our sin. He took all of our sin nature. And he crucified it on the cross. Because we couldn't do it. And so now we can't have victory over the flesh. It's just who we're going to obey. What are you going to chain yourself to? Four, it's important to realize and know that the flesh still exists and it still pulls after conversion. Can you imagine going to a church or a place that teaches you that if you're a believer that you won't presumptuously sin anymore? You're going to live a life of doubt? You're going to live a life of guilt? Because you, you're always going to have that battle. But if you don't understand this, that the flesh still exists, and it's still going to tempt you, and it's still going to pull, and by the way, I hope not, but you're probably going to give in at some point. But you're not saying? What if, I mean, that's, it's important that you know that. And then it's okay, because you've got people here that are struggling and going through the same thing. And by the way, not just us, but with Jesus. In Hebrews it says, we don't have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Because Jesus was a man, and he was tempted, yet without sin. He did it right, but he understands the temptation. And you can talk to him about it, because he gets it. Number five, you put yourself or we put ourselves back under the bondage of sin when we walk in the flesh. We put ourselves back under the bondage of sin when we walk on the flesh. Next week we're going to see the victory comes in walking by the Spirit and what that means. The older I get, the more practical that sounds. The first time somebody told me to walk in the Spirit, I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, that sounds stupid. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? That doesn't sound very practical to me. And when I say stupid, I mean that it's something that I can't understand or comprehend or put into action. But we can't. Six, pride check. We cannot overcome corruption or achieve goodness on our own. We cannot overcome our corruption or achieve goodness on our own. In humility, it's important that Christians acknowledge who we are and what we're capable of. Here's the deal. If we don't do that, what if there was somebody in this body who was unfaithful to their spouse? How would you treat that person? If you think you know better than them and you don't understand your corruption, you're not going to be able to help somebody else who's caught in their sin. Because you're just going to be judgmental or hateful towards that person. 
If you don't understand that you're just as corrupt and just as capable of that sin as they are, how can you help them? How can you restore them? Or be part of the restoration <coughs> process? It's important to be humble and understand that you can't overcome your corruption on your own and that you can't achieve goodness on your own. That all took Jesus Christ and what he did and that we're putting this body to support one another, to love each other, to build one another up and encourage and empathize and you know, make disciples and all the stuff that we're supposed to do as a body. But there is a humility aspect in that. All right, quick applications, then we're done. Number one, I asked you to do this early in the lesson, but think about what specific things appeal to your flesh so that you can begin to identify its pull. You're aware, or you should now be aware that you have this part in you that likes to sin, and it's not going away. And so now you're in a battle for the rest of your life. It's just like they used to say at the end of every G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. Now you know. You have this part of you, and you're in a battle. So start to figure out where it tempts you or appeals to your flesh that you begin to identify its pull. Number two, don't put yourself in situations in which you repeatedly fail by succumbing to the flesh. It's a defensive mechanism, but we're not called to be on the offensive. Fight smart. Don't fight stupidly. Number three, because what's the result of sin? Separation. If you understand that it's important, stop putting yourself in situations to die. If you're in a battle, you're not going to go do the stupidest thing that you can do so that you die. You're going to fight with intelligence and fight smartly. And that means that maybe you have to be open and honest and transparent with the people on your team. And if they're doing what they're supposed to do, they'll help you fight the fight. Number three, Proactively defend against the flesh by taking steps to conform to Christ's will. That's a very churchy statement. Okay? What I'm saying is don't wait for it to happen because it's not just going to happen. You're going to have to take proactive steps. The burden of responsibility is on the individual down here. That's accomplished through prayer, confession, Scripture reading, scripture memorization, loving others, serving others, and on and on and on. There's several spiritual disciplines that you can enact to do that. And I'll be honest with you, that gets to the point, there's some part of you, in order to get to that point, that you're going to have to make a decision to say, I want this. And I realize that that's costly for me. Being an effective disciple is costly. Because you're giving up your time, your effort, your energy, your emotion, all those things that we always talk about. That's what love is. That's what serving is. Especially serving Jesus. Alright, so we have just a couple minutes for questions. Does anybody have anything they want to talk about or need clarification on? Alright, then next week we will tackle part two of this, which deals with uh, the battle. You had to overcome the pool of the flesh.